as we come to Advent, the theme is hope. And hope is a strange emotion. I, I remember going to a tr- particular training, and uh, the instructor used to say, uh, where there's breath, there's hope. And he would uh, tell us over and over again that trust your training, trust your body, you can survive. No matter how bad the situation is, no matter what's going on, you can survive this. You can live through this. And I, I even as a 19-year-old kid, remember thinking how important it is that you keep your mind in the right spot in the midst of all kinds of things going crazy. That if you're your mind recognizes that you can survive, you can get through this, then your body will follow that. Uh, I've seen in my own ministry at times uh, people who have a terminal illness that once they get to a point to where they don't have hope anymore, it usually, death comes quickly. When they get to a point where they're like, the doctors have said there's nothing they can do and there's nothing that's going to happen here, it usually doesn't take long. The human mind is a powerful thing, and it's interesting to me that we start the Advent season with hope. As I've said for the last several weeks, I have been shocked at how beautifully the text that we were in in the book of Luke dovetailed with what was going on in our society and our culture. It was almost as if God has some kind of plan, you know, that he's able to work out. And I will say that I've thought the same thing this week. That is, I look at these texts, and I will tell you that the lectionary, the text that we use for Advent, uh, those were picked by Martin Luther. He had no idea what was going to be going on in the life of America, uh, much less that there was even going to be an America. And so these texts were picked just for Christianity to be able to go through, and they fit like hand in glove with where we are today. The first text that we're given to look at hope doesn't seem very hopeful. It frames the problem, and it's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read the first few verses of that so that we can see what's going on. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood with the fire, causing water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who you remember in your ways. Here, Isaiah is sitting with all the nations coming in on Israel, and he's looking at his Bible and the stories of God standing up for Israel to Egypt, of God standing up to Israel against the the Philistines and saying, where are you now? Babylon is at the door. Assyria is chomping at the bit. Where are you now? Because right now, I'm reading these stories about what you did in Egypt, and they're feeling a whole lot like fairy tales. Isaiah cries out to God, when are you going to step up for your people again? I want to see the mountains 
thunder with your voice like I read about in the book of Exodus? Where is your fiery might now? Isaiah is looking at the external circumstances around him and saying, God, when, when are you going to rescue us? You rescued them. I can read story after story after story in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. I can see what you did in Egypt. I can see what you did in the book of Exodus. When are you going to come down from the mountain now? And let's just be real with each other. Can, can we do that? Do we sometimes feel like that ourselves? Like we watch the news, which I wouldn't recommend, but you watch the news and you go, what the heck is going on? I mean, we're a culture that can't figure out which bathroom to use. We're a culture that it seems like even common sense, day-to-day things we're struggling with. And it seems like as believers, I look at the, the news, I look around me, and I go, what kind of world are we leaving my children? What kind of world are my grandkids going to grow up in? Am I even going to recognize it? It's like everything, to use the old expression, is going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know who has the handbasket. I don't know what they're doing with it, but I want them to stop it. We look around us, and I feel like Isaiah. I, I, I want to see your power. I want to feel, I, I read about the revivals, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, where your spirit just swept across this land and people got saved and it had an impact on our culture and things changed. I don't care about the politics. I don't care. I just want to see change, real change. So there's an external pressure on Isaiah where he's crying out, God, I need to see you now. I need to be rescued now. And when he says, God, it seems like you, you rescue those who are righteous, who do righteous deeds joyfully, uh, we got a problem, don't we? And Isaiah's not stupid. He recognizes that. He goes on to say, behold, or look, think about this. God, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become, become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls on your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and made us melt in the hand of our own sin. So Isaiah looks around him at the external forces coming in on him and says, God, we need you to show up. And then he starts looking internally and saying, we got an internal problem too. There's not a person in this room that can look at your heart and look at what motivates you and say, hey, I got this thing figured out. 
Isaiah goes so far as to say that our absolute best, our righteous deeds, the best we can offer God is like filthy rags. It's of no value. It's worthless. It's nasty. We can bring nothing to the table that God would want. So we've got an external problem. We've got an internal problem. In fact, he says, not only are we wicked and evil in the things that we do, we're wicked and evil in the things that we think about. We're wicked and evil so that our, like the wind blows a leaf around, we can't control ourselves. We are in desperate need of a Savior. We can't live up to our own moral standards. We know that. I think that one of the reasons why God lets us have kids is because the truth often comes out. I remember very well, and I'm sure I've used this analogy before, uh, getting on to one of my kids, one of my children, uh, and I don't embarrass them, so I won't say their name, but their initials are Emily Harrison, um, would smack their sister and then go, who sorry? Like, immediately. Like, we weren't even in tears yet. Just, Whack, that's my toy. Who sorry? And then you would go, did you just hit your sister? Oh, but I said I was sorry. Right? Is mine the only, mine the only kids that are that evil? Okay, so, so I, I set her down. I'm like, Emily, come, come here. And, and, no, here. And, what? Come here. The child comes here. And, what? And it's like, look at me, child. Look at me. And uh, my in-laws said, I, I, I've been around your family for a week here while we're visiting. And when you say, look at me, that, that makes me nervous when you say that. But so I'm like, look at me. Now, understand this. You can't just do whatever you want to do and then say, I'm sorry and think it's okay. And as the words came out of my mouth, The Holy Spirit said, really? Really, that's what you're going to say? I'm like, all right, so you go treat your sister right. Apparently, I have to go to my closet for a while. We know our own hearts. We can't live up to our own moral standard. We can't do the things that we tell our kids to do. We know. Nobody has to be convinced if they're really honest with themselves that they're evil. In fact, I love and I've used here multiple times the quote from Thomas Shepard. I am the most wicked person I know because I know the depths of my own heart better than I know anybody else. I don't know what motivates you, but I can't deny what motivates me. So Isaiah identifies there's an external problem. There's an internal problem. And then he says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. I can feel his cry. Behold, please look, we are your people. I can feel the weight of the way he's saying this. God, we've got nothing to offer you. Just please. We're your people. It feels like there's no 
hope. And yet, the story goes on. The story goes on. In Matthew chapter 1, Joseph finds out that his wife is expecting. He knows what their relationship has been, and so he's considering these things. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want us to stop for just a second and talk about Jesus' name. I mean, how we come up with Jesus is not what I'm talking about. You realize that if you were to go, could go back in time in a time machine and saw Jesus and called him Jesus, he wouldn't know who you were talking to. Well, he would because he's God. But um, if you were to meet him, his name was Yeshua. Uh, same as Joshua. The reason why we call him Jesus is because uh, his name written in uh, Latin, uh, there is no Y sound, and so they used a J. And then to make it masculine, they put the S on the end, and then it came from Latin to English, whereas Joshua's name in the Old Testament went from Hebrew to Greek to English, and so it's pronounced a little bit more like his real name. But Jesus' name is Yeshua. And that's important because in Hebrew, Yeshua means rescue. And that's important because what the angel here is saying is, is we need a savior, we need somebody who will rescue us, and you're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. That name screams aloud that he is coming to save us. He's our rescuer. Isaiah frames the problem. We've got problems on the outside. We've got problems on the inside. And we need a rescuer. And so this angel saying to Joseph, hey, somebody is coming. He's coming from the Holy Spirit in, the, in your young bride. And you're going to call his name Jesus because he's going to rescue his people from their sins. The second text that we're given in hope is where we find ourselves today. We, like Isaiah, cry out, God, I want to see the New Testament. I want to see the Holy Spirit fall. I want to see changes. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he starts off, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called in the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying here that that internal problem has been dealt with in Jesus. 
He opens up and says, grace and peace to you. That grace to you was a common Greek greeting. Everybody in, in the, the Greek-Roman world, when they saw somebody, just like we, we say, how you doing? And we don't really care how they're doing. That's just the way that we say, hey, right? In fact, if somebody tells you how they're doing, you usually go, really, did I ask for this? Well, you did, really. I mean, if you just are honest. Um, but uh, in Greek life, you would say, grace to you. And so Paul uses that common greeting, adding the common Hebrew greeting. They still use it today. When two Jewish people meet in Israel, they say, shalom, which is peace. And so you add grace and peace, and you get the greeting that Paul uses throughout the New Testament, grace and peace to you. And then he goes on to say something crazy. He says that you are not lacking in any gift. Some of us, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, feel like we're lacking quite a bit. Now, remember that the people that Paul is writing to in this little, well, it wasn't a very small town, this town of Corinth, are like us. They'd never physically met Jesus. They'd heard the stories, but they had never seen the things that the disciples said, remember John says, I'm writing to you the things that I saw and heard myself. John was an eyewitness to what was going on. These Corinthians, they just heard about it. Most of the people in this Corinthian church hadn't grown up Jewish, so the laws and the regulations and all of those things that so framed the coming of Jesus, so that when John saw Jesus, all he had to say was, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and everybody in that crowd knew what he was saying because they had participated in that sacrificial system for centuries, and it was ingrained. Just as we know, at Christmas, there's some things that you just do, right? We, you just put your tree up at this time. I mean, we know how we do things, right? You put lights up. You do, you do the things that you do. You start listening to, to Mariah Carey, all. And we know that that's the way it goes around Christmas, well, they had holidays like that, and God had made all of those rules and holidays and regulations to set the scene for the Savior who was coming, so that when that Savior came, John could just say one sentence, and everybody was like, whoa, that's a big statement. This guy is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Well, these Corinthian believers didn't have that. They had grown up in a culture that didn't have anything to do with the things of God. They grew up in a culture that, that did things that we would look at and think were terribly wicked and untoward, and yet Jesus had changed them. In fact, Paul says here that the way that Jesus was confirmed to them was with their lives. He said that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So they'd heard the stories of Jesus, but the way that it was confirmed and the way their language changed and what was important to them and what they wanted the difference between a believer and a non believer. In day-to-day -day practices, what do you want? The believer cries out with Paul, 
Oh, the wretched man that I am. The very thing that I want to do, I don't do. The very thing that I would do, I don't do. It's sin alive in me. Who will deliver me from this body of flesh? And Paul is saying to these believers in Corinth, you know that Jesus is real because you see the change he's made in you and in the people around you. This is what I mean by that. My, my dad, Frank Harrison, for the first 13 years of my life was not a believer. He was not a Christian. Uh, I've, I've shared the story about how Brother Bill Ellen came to our house every Thursday night, because Thursday night was Thursday night visitation in the old Baptist world, and uh, every Thursday night he would come to our door, and he would take his Case X pocket knife and rap on the screen door. I can hear the sound in my head just as clearly as I did for every Thursday night for 13 years. And they would sit around and talk about the weather and sports and football. And, and then finally, Brother Bill would button it up and say, well, Frank, are you ready to get saved? Or, Frank, are you going to go to hell? And Dad would get mad and he'd cuss him out and throw him out of the house. Get out of my house. And then when I was 13, Dad got saved. On a Sunday morning, Dad was talking to my mom. Mom was getting ready to get to church to teach her Sunday school class, and dad, mom said something to dad, they back and forth, and dad said, I'm just miserable. And mom said, because you're under conviction. And he picked mom's Bible up, being a smile, and threw it at her and said, show me. And mom took her Bible down and walked dad through the Romans road, and he got saved there in the living room floor. He joked for years that for six months he couldn't talk because God had changed his vocabulary. He was one of the most vulgar, foul-mouthed people. I mean, even as a kid, I'd heard all the words. And all of a sudden, he constantly would have to walk around and go, because God changed his speech. And most people in this town know my dad is the guy who would walk up and tell them about Jesus in the hospital or at work. Whoever dad got around, he wanted to tell them that God had saved him, that somehow God had reached through the mud and the muck and the nasty and the filth and found his soul and saved him and changed him. How did he go from a foul-mouthed, vulgar person that nobody wanted to be around to somebody that just oozed the truth of Jesus? That doesn't happen naturally. There are people that are elders in this church that I've had people come up to me and say, 20 years ago, that man scared me. He was foul-mouthed. He stayed drunk all the time. He was ugly. We didn't like him. I know Jerry Eubanks is watching. I've had people tell me how mean that man was. And yet today, he's different. How? People don't change. Even the Bible says, can a leopard change its own spots? People don't change. That's why there's like a 90% recidivism rate in AA. Drunks don't stop being drunks. Druggies don't stop being druggies. The people that the police have to deal with on a week-in and week-out basis, they know those addresses. Those are the frequent flyers. Those people don't stop 
being that way unless something changes them. And Paul is telling the Corinthian church, you know that the stories we've told you about Jesus are true because you've been changed. You're different. You, God's changed your want tos. Doesn't mean that you don't sin, but it means after you sin, you mourn your sin. You don't celebrate it. That when you do sin, that God's Holy Spirit's convicting you of it. There's something different about you. You know that. He frames all that by this. I don't know if you noticed this as I read it, but I, as I read it, I read it over and over and over again. The phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end, that you are not lacking in any gifts as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you in the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called in the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Five times in this one little paragraph, he says, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord. He includes all three of Jesus' titles. And I want to offer to you that our hope can be found in those three words. One is Lord. Now, we don't use the word Lord the way it was used in Old English, which is why it was translated here. We don't even have a word really in English near it other than master without the racial overtones. Someone who can tell you what to do, who owns you, who's over you. In Spanish, there's a word similar called jefe. The big boss. Jesus is Lord. We don't make him Lord. Sometimes when we're telling people about Jesus, we'll say something like, make Jesus the Lord of your life. We don't make Jesus anything. He is the Lord. We confess that he is Lord. We agree with God that he is Lord. He is Lord, whether we like it or not. And so by in love, him saying to the Corinthian church, he's the Lord Jesus Christ, it's saying rather than taking the fact that he's Lord fighting it in our hearts. I'm not going to accept that. You can't tell me what to do. I may be sitting on the inside, but I'm standing on the outside kind of a thing. We say, hey, he knows what he's doing. I don't. I can rest in the fact that he's Lord. He gets to be the boss. So I don't make the decision about what kind of car I'm going to buy. I pray about it. I I go to the word. I'm not the boss of my life. He's the boss of my life. Jesus, we've already touched on, that he's the rescuer. The first step of becoming a believer is admitting that we need rescuing. Most people go through life thinking they got it all together. I got this figured out. Everything may be falling apart, but they got it figured out. I mean, I have literally sat on the fourth floor at the Baptist hospital with somebody wearing a paper pants, trying to witness to them and them say, I I, I got it. I got, I got this thing. I'm like, dude, you're wearing paper pants right now. You haven't got it figured out. So Lord Jesus and then Christ. He is not just a normal guy. He's sent from God. And once we recognize those things, that he's Lord, that he's rescuer, that he is from the Father, then that's where our hope lies. Our hope doesn't lie in what somebody else can do, whether it's a politician, whether it's somebody we like a lot, whether it's the preacher, whether 
Our hope doesn't lie out there. Our hope doesn't lie in me that I got this figured out. I can do what I want to do. I'm going to buy. I got this. My hope lies in him. And Paul, in this text, wants to make sure they understand in this life, you don't need anything else. You don't need the latest book. You don't need some newfangled way. He's enough. That in our internal struggle with sin, he's given us everything we need. We just have to lean on him and depend on him and look to him. We use when we're witnessing to people the term accept Jesus And I think what Paul is saying in here in 1 Corinthians is as we go through the Christian life day to day to day to day to day, we've got to accept Jesus. When I'm, if somebody in here were to have a heart attack right now, we've got an AED on that back wall, which if you put the, the stickers on the person and then hook the probes up, it does everything. It literally talks to you. It's, in fact, it's spooky. It's like um, normal rhythm detected. I mean, there's like this, very calm voice, you know, hey, we, it's all going to be okay. And then it's, if it's going to shock the person, it says, please stand back, please stand back. And then it, and then it shocks them. So it, it can actually save a life. That's why we've invested in, in that AED. It can save somebody's life. If somebody has a heart attack right here and we don't get it, it doesn't do them any good at all. We can't say, hey, we got an AED on the wall, Breathe. It doesn't help them, and thus we use it. And that's the way Jesus is. If you go through this life and try to do the Christian walk on your own, without the fellowship of each other, which Paul talks about there in 1 Corinthians, without leaning on who Jesus is as he reveals himself in his word, it doesn't do you any good. Which is why the church is full up with Christians that don't act like Christians. Because they're trying to do it themselves. Our hope rests in him and him alone. And so as Isaiah has framed the problem, we have the solution for the internal problem. And that solution is Jesus. That's it. That's what we need. As we come to the final text in the book of Mark, we see the solution for the external problem. In Mark chapter 13, But in those days, after tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so Mark here, and this is a text, goodness, we've spent two months hammering this text out. You guys should know exactly what's being spoken at the Olivet Discourse. Literally, we could probably do a test now. So, and the parable that Jesus uses here, um, Matt preached on beautifully. I have reiterated over and over, and it's, it, it's an analogy that we all get. 
hear this tree when it starts putting on buds, you know that Jesus is com- that, 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 that summer's coming. We know that. Everybody, when the dogwoods start looking white and pink, you know summer's coming. Easter's right here. It may still be cold outside in February, but when all those daylilies start popping their little heads up, you know summer's coming, right? Jesus says, just like that, when you see the world going to hell in a handbasket, realize I'm at the gates. Now, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. It may be before I finish this sermon. It may be in a thousand years. But what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that we're closer today than any time in Christian history. We're closer today than believers have ever been. And we know he's coming back. And so as we see the external problems, as we see everything falling apart, that should just as surely, it may be a frigid cold day, and I walk out in the yard and see those daylilies sticking up out of the ground, I go, hey, spring's coming. Those guys know better than me. Those guys know better than, than uh, the meteorologist, I, James Mann. How did I forget that? Oh. Uh, Okay, so those daylilies know, and Jesus is saying, just as surely as you know that when the green comes up on the tree that summer's coming, when everything starts falling apart, just know I'm at the gates. I'm coming. That's our external solution. The internal solution, we rest in Jesus. We rest in him being Lord of our life, him being in control. In the external solution, the nations raging around us, the world seemingly unraveling, falling apart. We can't fix it. He can. And he's coming back. And so we close with Jesus' final words on this. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So we could just go, what? Don't know when it's going to happen. But Jesus leaves it this way. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of our house will come, in the evening or the midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. As we think about this Advent season, and today is hope. This is a scary world we're living in right now. I, 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 don't, I don't know, but according to the news right now, we have had more COVID cases in the last month than we had the whole year before. People are sick. Our economy is taking a huge hit from the fact that people can't work. Small businesses are closing at a rate that is unprecedented. And historically in America, small businesses have been the cornerstone of our economy because they can absorb issues that come on easier than big businesses. 
Some of you are struggling with financial issues right now. It would be easy to sit at home and just worry. Well, I, I don't know. Is a vaccine coming? Am I going to take the vaccine? I mean, if Bill Gates is involved in developing a vaccine, I, I used Windows 95. I'm not sure I want to use that. Is that going to save us? Is this politician or that politician going to come up with a plan that's going to fix everything? Is the government going to come up with, a, a, or are they going to make us all stay at home for a month and further cripple the economy? What are we going to do about toilet paper? Ah! Our hope can't be in looking around us. It can't be. Things break. This world is falling apart. It can't be in anything other than Jesus. And so as we look at hope, we focus on him. And he closes this text by saying, stay awake. Our natural tendency is just to lean back and let whatever's happening carry us. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Stay vigilant. Watch over your heart. Guard over yourself. Rest in him. Hope in him. Father God, Lord, I pray that we would hope in you, that we would look to you, that we would recognize that everything we need, you give us. That you've equipped us with everything that we need. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful, that we would stay awake, that we would rest in you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your son and we thank you that your son is coming back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.